everybody. Morning, it's a beautiful sunny day out there today. Everybody's kind of in your post spaghetti dinner, you know, kind of just uh, uh, what would you, what would you call it? Just kind of like a stupor, a coma. Yep, yep, yep. It. Uh, everybody have a great time last night. Haven't heard any negative, like you know, opinions on or anything. Thank you to everybody that helped. The kids were awesome. Uh, thank you to the not only the cooks but the, cl- the cleanup crew. I know some of you guys, Marlene. What time did you guys leave last night? Quarter to nine. Okay, so thank you to everybody that was involved from beginning to end. Uh, you know, great job, everybody. All right, let's open up in a word of prayer here today. We've got a lot of ground to try to cover here this morning. Uh, we are talking about uh, Christology. This is week two of. Uh, of the doctrine of Christ, and we were talking about, we started last week, and we're going to finish it here today. We're, we're talking about the incarnation, which is the, it's the trickiest part, the most important part of the whole doctrine of Christ, uh, and, and it can be difficult to understand, and, and uh, so we're, we're, uh, we're going to finish that up here today. So let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful day uh, Lord, it's just great to be here together on this Sunday uh, Sunday morning, and and Lord, we just uh, appreciate all that you do for us. We thank you for the event last night and just the the great time of fellowship to be together and enjoy one another, enjoy good food, and and uh, just uh, yeah, it's just great to be with your people, Lord. And so uh, today, as we look into your Word, as we examine uh, this doctrine of Christ, Father, help us to understand, clear our minds, help us to focus on the things that we're talking about and, and not to have our minds wander uh, and just uh, help us to, to really uh, get a hold of, of this, uh, this doctrine. And we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last week, we began talking about what is often called the kenosis. Now, do not let the, you know, the fancy name bother you. Kenosis simply means emptying. Okay, uh, and, and it comes from Philippians chapter 2, and we read this last week, but it, I want to read it again. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. In fact, I want to begin at verse 5, because Paul's point in writing this to the church at Philippi was that this is the mindset that they as Christians were to have. This is how we are to think, okay? It says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, though he was God, He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. That whole idea of humbling himself, of giving up his uh, divine privileges, you know, the word that is actually used there is that word kenosis. That's where we get you know, that phrase from, that, that means to empty himself. Now, what does it mean that he emptied himself? And this is where it gets tricky, and, and many different you know, heresies have kind of grown up through the years, especially early on in the church's existence, um, you know, as, as the early church tried to you know, come up with a formulation of what exactly was meant by this. Because uh, it is difficult to understand. I mentioned last week that, you know, this is probably the single hardest doctrine 
in the, in the estimation of most theologians to understand. Even more so than the Trinity, uh, you, you know, this is like the, the, the difficult one. How could God become flesh? How could God, you know, become a human being? And not just how did he do that, but what does that look like? How do we think about it? How do we express it? You know, it is a difficult doctrine. And so a lot of different uh, errors have taken place through the years. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I want to talk about, you know, the, 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 the actual uh, kind of orthodox Christian view of this. And I also want to talk about some of those errors. I went back and forth in my mind over how much to, to get into this, but I decided I'd rather give you more information than less because many of these errors are still prevalent today. They're prevalent in movements like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the, the Mormons to, to a certain degree. The, the Mormons are a little harder to pin down because they have all kind of like wild different doctrines, but you know, both of them have elements of, of error when it comes to Christology. You know, and, and, and so, and a lot of like kind of even offshoots of what is considered to be normal, normal Christianity, you hear things like this sometimes. So it's very important for us to try our best to understand this. You know, what, what does this mean? All right, so first, let me give you the negative side. What's the false idea of the emptying? Well, the false idea of the emptying is that Jesus gave up his attributes as God, either fully or in part, that he essentially gave up some of his attributes in order to become a human being, okay? He, he you know, no longer had them, or that he kind of sat them on a shelf for a while while he became a human being. That is a false understanding of what the incarnation is, you know, when, when the Bible says that Jesus emptied himself, that he made himself of no reputation, that he humbled himself, all the different phrases that's used there uh, in order to explain this, it does not mean that in any way he ceased being God, okay? And that's what it would mean if he gave up his attributes. It says he gave up his privileges, which is a very different thing. Like, you know, the, the, the living in heaven with God where, you know, he has been eternally, he left that for a period of time. But he never ceased being who he is. Okay, that is heresy. And, and, and we'll go into that more here as we go uh, this morning. Now, the true understanding of this involves basically three things of what the, the kenosis is. One, it involves the veiling of his pre-incarnate glory, that he didn't give up his glory, but he veiled it in some way so that it would not, you know, so that he could become human and, and wouldn't like just be walking around kind of glowing like the sun all the time, okay? Um, let me give you an idea. The, the word veiling gets a little confusing sometimes for us. All of us have seen veils, like we've been to a wedding or something like that. We've seen a bride with a veil. The problem is we don't see veils very often in our culture, and when we do, like a wedding veil, you can see right through it. So you're like, well, I don't really know what good that's doing anyway. You know, a better, a better description, like for me, I, I want you to think of, of something like a blackout shade or a blackout blind blackout curtains. How many of you have ever 
seen those, used those. A lot of times they're used by people who like work a shift where they have to sleep during the day. So they'll get blackout blinds. What's that do? It keeps the sun from coming in. It keeps the light from coming in. Makes the house essentially like completely dark inside when you shut the lights off. Now, if you can imagine a house sitting in the middle of a lot, just a little ranch house, but inside, you know, who knows, for whatever reason, the person has all these incredibly bright lights inside the house. You know, use, let's say they, they raise orchids. I have no idea if orchids need bright lights or not. Let's just, let's just go with it. They raise orchids, so they need all these bright lights, but they don't want to disturb the neighbors. So they put out blackout curtains or blackout blinds. So every time they flip on that light switch, it's like, you know, you have all this light. They shut the blinds, and no light can get out. Well, the light's still light. It's still everything it is. It still has all the properties, all the brightness. It is still light. The house is still a house. It has all the properties of a house. Nothing is, is any different. But yet, the light doesn't shine in the outside because it's been blacked out. It's been veiled. That's kind of the way it is with Jesus when it comes to his pre-incarnate glory. It was always there. But in some way that only God could, he worked a miracle and he veiled it from the outside so it couldn't be seen. We do see one particular place of it, and we talked a little bit about this last week, Glenn mentioned it in his sermon, the Mount of Transfiguration. What do we see there? Peter, James, John, they go up on the mountain with Jesus, and they're up there, and all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses appear, and they see Jesus starting to shine and to glow, and they fall down, you know, and of course, Peter being Peter, it's like, man, this is just like so awesome. Let's build like little temples here and let's just stay up here forever. And, and, you know, God's like, Peter, you're missing the point. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. This is all about Jesus. Moses, who was the lawgiver, what's the purpose of the law? What did the law lead to? Led to Jesus. Elijah, the great miracle-working prophet that kind of like opened up the period of the prophets when the prophets would be the, the dominant spiritual forces in Israel. Elijah, you know, it wasn't about him. It was about Jesus. The, the period of the prophets all pointed toward Jesus. That was the point. And, 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 you know, and, and it's almost like for an instant, Jesus pulled back the blackout blinds for just a little bit and said, here you go take a peek. This is my glory. I think he only did it a little bit because I think if he had completely opened it up, Peter would have never made that mistake. Peter just would have fallen flat in his face and like everybody else in the Bible who sees the glory of God would have said, I am not worthy to be in your presence. So Jesus' glory was always there, but it was veiled in some way. That is is, is part of the, the proper understanding of, of the, the emptying of Christ. Another part of it is his condensation, condensation, condescension, Woo. his condescension, his humility. He had to condescend, he had to humble himself, he had to stoop down in order to do this. He left his privileges of living, you know, eternally in heaven, and came to earth and took on a human body in order to save us, in order to die for us. 
It's, it's, it's stressed over and over in those verses. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his privileges. He took a humble position of a slave, was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself. You see, it's over and over again, the humility of Christ. He literally humiliated himself in order to become one of us and die for us. So those are two of the essential parts. And the third part is his voluntary non-use of certain attributes during his earthly life. He had all the power, all the attributes of, of Godhead, but yet he voluntarily did not use all of those things during his earthly life. You know, when, when, when toward the end of his life and, and everything is leading up to, to his passion, you know, at one point he says he could have called 10,000 angels, but he didn't. He wouldn't have had to call any angels. He could have snapped a finger and made it all go away, but he didn't. You know, we see Jesus say that he doesn't know the time of his, uh, of his coming, he subordinated himself to the Father because it was the Father's position. In the Jewish world, it was the Father's position to determine when the, the groom would go get his bride. And it didn't mean Jesus was, wasn't omniscient, but he chose not to use his omniscience. You know, he, he purposefully chose not to use some of his attributes in order to be a human being and live a human life. You know, and again, we, we, we'll probably talk more about that as we go. So that is the proper understanding of the kenosis, of the emptying. He did not at any time give up his attributes. He didn't cease being God in any way. He did, he did voluntarily not use some of them. He also veiled his glory, and he condescended or, or humiliated himself in order to become a human being. Okay, that is... is is the orthodox understanding of, of what the kenosis is. Now, along with this brings another question. It's, it's the question of impeccability. Uh, and, and again, we, t we started talking about this a little bit last week. It, it, you know, what is that? That means that God cannot sin. It, it, it's really that simple. It just means that God cannot sin. All right, so we know Jesus didn't sin. But the fact that he didn't sin is different than whether he can sin or not. So let's first establish the fact that he didn't sin. Let me uh, read something to you from uh, Millard Erickson's uh, Christian Theology. Great book. Uh, you know, I would highly recommend it. And he does a particularly great job dealing with the, the, the incarnation. That's, that's why uh, we're using his theology uh, mostly during this particular uh, study. It says, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus is described as a high priest who truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That's also Hebrews, Hebrews 7.26. Hebrews 9.14 says that he's unblemished. Peter, who of course knew Jesus well, declared him to be the Holy One of God and taught that Jesus committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. John said, in him is no sin. And Paul also confirmed that, that Christ had no sin. 
So it, it is the, the teaching of the entire New Testament that Jesus did not sin, okay? That he did not commit any sin. But the trickier question is, could he commit sin? And, and if he couldn't, then is it possible for him to really be tempted? What did his tempting actually mean? Well, I thought, uh, actually, Erickson does a particularly great job of dealing with this. So let me read to you uh, some of what he says about this. He says, yet we have the statement of the writer of the letter of Hebrews that Jesus was indeed tempted in every respect as we are. Beyond that, the descriptions of Jesus' temptations indicate great intensity. For example, think of his agony in Gethsemane when he struggled to do the Father's will. But could Jesus have sinned? Scripture tells us that God does no evil and cannot be tempted. Was it really possible then for Jesus, inasmuch as he is God, to sin? If not, was his temptation genuine? Here we are encountering one of the greatest mysteries of the faith, Jesus' two natures. And that is what our next part of our conversation is going to be. Now some through the years, again, some, some skeptics, some, some even within Christianity, as they've struggled to kind of deal with this, uh, you know, have tried to essentially diminish this. They, some have made the argument, well, if, if Jesus couldn't sin, then he couldn't really be human because in order to sin is, is to be part of the human condition. Well, that's kind of a, honestly, that's kind of a silly argument, uh, and, and we'll kind of deal with that here in, in, in a second. Um, and and one, one of those persons was a guy named A.E. Taylor, and, and, and he's going to kind of deal with what Taylor has to say here. He says, does a person who does not succumb to temptation really feel it or does that person not, as, as Taylor would contend? Leon Morris, who's a, a, a legendary like, you know, scholar, Bible scholar, uh, Leon Mor Morris argues the reverse of Taylor's contention is true. The person who resists knows the full force of temptation. Sinlessness points to a more intense rather than less intense temptation. He quotes Taylor, or qu quotes Morris here. The man who yields to a particular temptation has not felt its full power. He has given in while the temptation has yet something in reserve. Only the man who does not yield to a temptation, who as regards that particular temptation is sinless, knows the full extent of that temptation. One might have questions about some of Morris's argument. For example, is the strength of a temptation measured by some objective standard or by its subjective effect? Is it not possible that someone has yielded to temptation uh, may have yielded at the, at the point of its maximum force? But the argument uh, that he is making is nonetheless valid. One simply cannot conclude that where sin has, has not been committed, temptation has not been experienced. Uh, the, the contrary may very well be true. Think of any time that you have been tempted greatly to commit a sin, but yet you did not commit it was not the temptation, every bit is real. In fact, in some points in your life, it may have been overwhelming, but you still did not succumb. So, you know, the, the, the very fact that, that, you know, you have not sinned in a particular time does not mean that the temptation was not real. We can't say that Jesus, just because he never sinned, he never felt real temptation. That's silly. We know that by our own experience. Because we've experienced temptation and still didn't sin in that moment. You know, so that's just not a valid 
argument. Yeah, Dale. Sure. Well, hold on. You're you're jumping ahead. <laughs> we'll, we'll 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 talk more about that. Not necessarily. Well, we'll talk more about the, the idea of development in 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 a little bit. Yeah. Hold hold on. Um, let me continue to read. It said, but the question remains: Is a person who does not sin truly human? If we say no, we are maintaining that sin is part of the essence of human nature. Such a view must be considered a serious heresy by anyone who believes that the human has been created by God. Since God would then be the cause of sin, the creator of a nature that is essentially evil. Inasmuch as we hold that, on the contrary, sin is not part of the essence of human nature. Instead of asking, is Jesus, uh, is Jesus as human as we are, we might better ask, are we as human as Jesus? For the type of human nature that each of us possesses is not pure human nature. The true humanity created by God has, in our case, been corrupted and spoiled. There have been only three pure human beings, and I kind of mentioned this last week just briefly. Adam and Eve before the fall and Jesus. They are the only three pure human beings that have ever existed. All the rest of us are, are, are but broken, corrupted versions of humanity. Jesus is not only as human as we are, he is more human. Our humanity is not a standard by which we are to uh, measure his. His, hum his humanity, true and unadulterated, is the standard by which we are to be measured. And we'll talk more about that as we talk about the two natures. But Jesus is pure humanity, perfect humanity, what we are intended one day to be, okay, what we will be when we are glorified. Jesus is the picture of that now. Not only is he a picture of God, he shows us God, but he also shows us, why, why are, again, and I mentioned this last week, but why are, why are we called Christian? Little Christ. Or, or imitators of Christ. Because Christ is, you know, what we are, are, are striving for. And our strivings can't do it. We, we can't get there. But through faith in Jesus Christ, you know, through our salvation, God will one day make us like his son. And that's what the New Testament tells us. That's what Paul wrote about in Romans. You know, that, that we are, are declared to be his children, and, and then, you know, we're adopted into his family, but then a part of the adoption process is he makes us more and more like Christ throughout our lives until finally we get to the point of our death, and we have, the big word for it is glorification. We're glorified. We are made into the image of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the picture of what we are to one day be. He's pure humanity, perfect humanity. He was tempted. He was tried. He felt those temptations, but he could not sin. If he could sin, then he was not God, because the Bible tells us that God cannot sin. He was perfect humanity. In fact, as we get into this next section here, the two natures of Christ, 
This is the single hardest part of the incarnation to understand. Okay? As we get into this section, talking about both his deity and his humanity, and not just those two things, but how they are united in one person. You know, that's the big thing for us to grasp, that, that he is both, and, and they are undiminished. In fact, one of the ways that through the years this has been stated is that Jesus is undiminished deity and perfect humanity, united in one person forever. And if you're taking notes, write that down. Okay, Jesus is undiminished deity. He, he, his deity was never diminished at all. And perfect humanity, not sinful humanity like us, but perfect humanity, 100% human, but human without sin. And he's united in one person forever, those two natures. Okay? Now that is an extraordinarily difficult to, thing to understand. Um, 1 Timothy 6. What, what part of 1 Timothy 6? Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's, it's really just as simple as what we said. God, you know, that glory is always there, but God veils his glory so that he could be amongst us. Uh, up until Jesus, no one had ever seen God at any time. It's the same thing John actually said, that, you know, God's a pure spirit, and no one could see that at any point. Well, yes, his rights and his privileges, but not his deity. You know, the, and, th and that's actually what we're going to get into right now. Yeah, yeah, hold on a second. We're going to get into that right now. Let's start with his deity, all right? Let, you know, let's start with, with it, it, when Jesus is two natures, let's start with his deity. Now, we've already established back when we talked about the Trinity that Jesus is God. Let me just briefly mention a few things. One, his claims. You know, the... the Jesus never came out and, and like stood on a big rock and said, hey, everybody look at me, I'm God. Never did that. But he did say things like he and the Father were one, uh, that he had come from the Father, he would go back to the Father, that he could forgive sins, that he would judge like, like the earth, uh, that one day they would see him coming on the clouds. Anybody that was you know, with me in the, uh, in the previous class to this, the uh, you know, recovering the supernatural worldview of the Bible, we talked a lot about that passage. The idea of the cloud rider was an ancient picture of God. Uh, you know, and so all these things you know, together essentially are claims of deity. He said, I am the, you know, that he is the I am. You know, bef before Abraham was, I am. And it was not, it's lost on us a lot of this because we don't understand the context of it. But the, the people in his day understood it because at numerous times when he would say these things, they would like pick up stones and get ready to start stoning him because they accused him of blasphemy, of claiming to be God. The, the, you know, why did the Jews want to crucify him? Well, they had, some of them had their own motives, motives, but one of the reasons they wanted to crucify him is because the, of, of blasphemy. That was the charge against Jesus. He claims to be God. 
So don't ever make the mistake of thinking Jesus did not think of himself as God. He very clearly did. Just because he didn't stand up and jump up and down and say, hey, I'm God, you know, his claims clearly stated that he believed he was God. The writing of John, the writing of Paul, the writing of the, of the, the author of Hebrews, all of those, they are explicit about the deity of Jesus Christ. Over and over, they, they, they deal with the deity of Jesus Christ. Okay, so all of those, you know, all of those writings, the resurrection, you know, the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead points to his deity. The fact that he could resurrect others and then that he himself was resurrected. Normal people just can't do that. You know, that doesn't just happen. And it points to the, to the deity of Jesus Christ. So the deity of Christ is well established throughout the entire New Testament. Now, I want to point out a couple of the major errors that have come about dealing with the deity of Jesus Christ. The first I want to talk about is called Ebionism, okay? The Ebionites. Let me um, read something to you here about the Ebionites. One group known as the Ebionites solved the tension, uh, and this is the tension between the two natures is what it's talking about, solved the tension by denying the real or ontological deity of Christ. In other words, that he wasn't truly in his being deity, okay? The name Ebionite derived from a Hebrew word meaning poor. It was originally applied to all Christians, later only to Jewish Christians but then to a particular sect of heretical Jewish Christians. So it's a name that, that at one point was kind of used in a broader sense, but then began to narrow through the years until it just was applied to this one group of, of, of Jewish Christians that had this particular belief. Um, the roots of Ebionism can be traced to Judaizing movements within the, the apostolic or New Testament period. Paul's letter to the Galatians was written to counter the activity of one such group. Judaizers had come to the Galatian Christians and were attempting to undermine Paul's apostolic authority. They taught that in addition to accepting by faith the grace of God in Jesus, it was necessary to observe all the regulations of Jewish law, such as circumcision. The Ebionites were a continuation of or an offshoot from the Judaizers. Okay? So, yeah, Next time you read Galatians, especially if you start at the beginning and read through to the end, pay attention to you know, what Paul is, is saying, uh, not just in the book, but why he's writing that letter. That, that you know, he, it's, a, it's an attempt to put down the teaching of these Judaizers. They were Jew, Jews who had come in and said, look, hey, we believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but just believing that's not enough, you've got to be circumcised and you've got to follow all the Jewish rites. You've got to do all those things, okay? In, in some ways, what they were really doing was diminishing the deity of Jesus. They were saying that Jesus himself is not enough in this, okay? You have to, you have to add to, to him these other things, okay? And, and, and so that was an early movement within Christianity, as he mentions here, the Ebionites were kind of like just an extension of that. They were a came along a little later, but built off that same kind of idea. 
Being strongly monotheistic, they focused their attention on the problematic deity of Christ. They rejected the virgin birth, maintaining that Jesus was born to Joseph and Mary in normal fashion. Jesus was, according to the Ebionites, an ordinary human possessing unusual, but not supernatural or superhuman gifts of righteousness and wisdom. He was the predestined Messiah, although in a rather natural or human sense. Now, they believe that Jesus' baptism, the Christ, descended upon the, 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 the human Jesus in the form of a dove. And at that point, you know, he, he kind of became, uh, the, you know, the, the, the Messiah, the, the, the Christ. Um, and they, they thought that, like, the, the idea of God's, uh, uh, the presence of God's power and influence in Jesus, uh, you know, it, it w- was kind of like what made him what he is. And then they, they feel, felt that near the end of Jesus' life, you know, Christ withdrew from Jesus as he died. Okay, so that was kind of part of the, the Ebionite view. It says, thus Jesus was primarily a human, albeit a human in whom at least for a time the power of God was present and active in an unusual degree. The Ebionites maintained their position partly through a denial or rejection of the authority of Paul's letters. The Abionite view of Jesus had the virtue of resolving the tension between the belief in the deity of Jesus and the monotheistic view of God, but at a high price. Abionism had to ignore or deny a large body of scriptural material. All of the references to the preexistence, the virgin birth, the qualitatively unique status and function of Jesus. In the view of the church, this was far too great a concession, and the church condemned Abionism. Okay, so that was one of the earliest, you know, errors, one of the earliest heresies to rise up dealing with the deity of Jesus. It diminished the deity of Jesus Christ and threw out a whole bunch of the Bible in order to do it, okay? Now, Ebionism, though it was early, was not the greatest threat. The greatest threat, maybe the single greatest threat heretically to the deity of Christ, to the whole doctrine of Christology, and and really, you could say to the entirety of Christianity, was Arianism. Let me read to you something about Arianism. A much more thoroughly developed and subtle view sprang up in the 4th century around the teaching of an Alexandrian presbyter named Arius. It became the first major threat to the views implicitly held by the church regarding Jesus' deity. Because Arianism arose in a period of serious theological reflection and represented a much more thorough and systematic construction than Ebionism, this movement had a real chance of becoming the official view. Although it was condemned by the church at the Council of Nicaea in 325, the Council of Nicaea is a very, you know, it's talked about a great deal. Uh, And it was an enormously important church council. A lot of people think that that's where the decision was made, you know, on what books belonged in the Bible, and that is not true. That, is, that did not happen at, Nice, at, at Nicaea. The, the main thing at Nicaea was tackling Arianism. That, that, that was the main function of the Council of Nicaea. So it was condemned by Nicaea at 325, and at subsequent councils afterwards condemned Arianism. Why? Because it's, it just kept popping up. You know, certain followers would not give it up. 
it lingers on to our day in various forms, most notably the movement known as Jehovah's Witnesses. Jehovah's Witnesses is really just a form of Arianism. It, it, it is really ex- the exact same thing as the Arians believe. Oh, it's not the, the Trinity in itself so much is they do not believe in, in Christ. They believe he was real, they just don't believe he was God. You know, which is exactly the same thing that, that, that they believe he was a created being. Yep, yep. A central conception in Arian understanding of Jesus is the absolute uniqueness and transcendence of God. God is the one source of all things, the only uncreated existent uh, in the whole universe. He alone possesses the attributes of deity. Further, he cannot share his being or essence with anyone else, for he would be divisible and subject to change. That is, he would not be God. In the view of the Arians, since that is so, Jesus could not have been God. There's no way there could have been you know, more than one person in the Godhead. Could not be possible. The f- Crazy phone. The Father, however, while creating everything that is, did not direct, now this is again, this is the Arian view. The Father, however, while creating everything that is, did not directly create the earth. Rather, the Father worked through the Word, the agent of his creation of and continuing work in the world. The the Word is also a created being, although the first and highest of the beings, a fiat creation out of nothing. From this, two other conceptions regarding the Word followed. First, the Word must have had a beginning at some finite point. The Arian slogan, therefore, became, there was a time he was not. That was the main slogan of the Arians. Speaking of Jesus, that there was a time that he was not. That that was their slogan. Second, the Son has no communion with or even direct knowledge of the Father. Although he is God's word and wisdom, he is not of the very essence of God. Being a creature, he bears these titles only because he participates in the word and wisdom of the Father. The result of all of this, and by the way, the Arians used a great deal of scripture. It's one of the reasons it was harder to deal with than the, the Ebionites. The Arians used a lot of scripture. But what the church did is they examined this at Nicaea as they said, one, they used the scriptures out of context and mis, you know, misapplied them, you know, misunderstood them. They, they basically used the scriptures wrongly. And all the evidence that would go against them, they basically either ignored or tried to exclude from the Bible. Okay? So, so basically they, they were in error in their understanding uh, and, and didn't even want to talk about the things that, that were, were against them. The result of all this was that the word was given the status of a demigod. Although the highest of all the creatures, he was still a creature. He was an intermediate between uh, God and the Father and the rest of the creation, uh, the agent by whom the Father had created them and continued to relate to them, but not God in the full sense. He might be called a God as a courtesy, but he is at most a God with a small g, a created God, not the God, the eternal uncreated being. The church, however, forced to evaluate the Arian view, came to its conclusion at the Council of Nicaea in 325. On the basis of considerations such as those that we have just cited, it concluded that Jesus is as much and genuinely God as is the Father. 
He is not a, of a different substance or even of a similar substance. He is of the very same substance as the Father. Having decided on this formulation, the council condemned Arianism, a condemnation repeated by l- later councils. And like I said, Arianism lives today. It, it lives in the Jehovah's Witnesses. It lives in, in other offshoots that hold basically the same view, that Jesus is a created being, not the eternal Son of God. And, and by doing so, they diminish his deity. All right? And, and any, anyone holding that view is not a Christian. I, you know, it, it is a false teaching. It, 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 is, uh, you know, it, it is probably the, the most wicked heresy that the church has ever dealt with, and it certainly is the most stubborn. Uh, it, it continues on and on. Now, let's look at his humanity. One, what's the importance of the very fact that, that Jesus is human? Again, let me read something to you from Dr. Erickson here. The importance of Jesus' humanity cannot be overestimated, for the issue in the incarnation pertains to our salvation. The human problem is the gap between us and God. The gap is, to be sure, ontological. Ontological just means being. It, it, you know, it, in its very existence, it, it, there's a gap between us and God. God is far superior to humans, so much so that he cannot uh, be known by unaided human reason. If he is to be known, God must take some initiative to make himself known to humanity. And we talked about that when we talked about the doctrine of the Bible. But the problem is not merely ontological. There also is a spiritual and moral gap between the two, a gap created by human sin. Humans cannot, by their own moral effort, counter their sin in order to elevate themselves to the level of God. If there is to be fellowship between the two, they have to be united in some other way. This, it is traditionally understood, has been, the, has been accomplished by the incarnation, in which deity and humanity were united in one person. If, however, Jesus was not really one of us, humanity has not been unified with deity, and we cannot be saved. For the validity of the work accomplished in Christ's death or at least its applicability to us as human beings, depends on the reality of his humanity, just as its efficacy depends on the genuineness of his deity. Furthermore, Jesus' intercessory ministry depends on his humanity. If he was truly one of us, experienced all of, of the human temptations and trials, then he is able to understand and empathize with us as, as in our struggles as humans. On the other hand, if he was not human or not completely human, uh, he, he cannot completely intercede as a priest must in, in behalf of those who he represents. Do you guys get the importance of the, the humanity of Christ? Jesus was not human. Then what he did in the cross has no effect to us. You know, he, he, we don't have time for questions right now. He had no effect on us. You know, in order to be a sacrifice for our sin, he had to be human. He also had to be divine. As he said, there's no real efficacy if he was not God. But if he was not human, then it doesn't apply to us. So it's enormously important that he was both things, okay? And again, that this is, you know, 
the, the, the teaching of the church through its entirety. And the church has fought the, any efforts to diminish his humanity for its entire existence. Okay? Now, let's take a look at this humanity. Well, one, Jesus exhibited the things that we think of as personhood, mind or intellect, emotion, will. We see all of these in Jesus. We see Jesus thinking. We see his mind. We also see his emotion. You know, Jesus weeps. He grows angry. You know, we see all these things. We see his will. We see his determination to do certain things. All of those parts are present in Jesus. That idea of personhood is there. So we have the testimony of the New Testament continually from beginning to end that Jesus is human. We see it in, in, in the things that are written about him. Now, some of the heresies. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is, is called docetism. Docetism was an early heresy about the humanity of Jesus. This, this is, 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 is docetism. We see such a denial of the reality of Jesus' humanity already in the situation of John's first letter, uh, that John's first letter vigorously opposed. I mentioned to you before that a lot of the letters of the New Testament are the apostles fighting early forms of, of, of heresy. Some of them are like the seminal forms that would become these heresies that we're talking about. Just like the Paul, you know, in Galatians was fighting the, the Judaizers, and that movement would later become Ebionism. Jo John was, was fighting, uh, you know, heretics that, that believed that Jesus was not fully human uh, in, in his first epistle. And that would later become what is called docetism. These, uh, you know, he makes an interesting statement about these. These heresies force the church to think through thoroughly and enunciate carefully its understanding of this matter. I mentioned this last week. Heresy always plays an important role, actually, in the church. They're not trying to do that, but every time the church is faced with a heresy, what does the church do? It has to come up with an answer. And so, you know, it forces the church to think deeply and to enunciate properly what the belief really is, what the Bible really teaches. And that's what happened with these things. The church responded, as the church always does. Again, docetism, uh, uh, in addition to a specific group of Christians known as docetists, a basic denial of Jesus' humanity permeated many other movements within Christianity including Gnosticism, which Glenn has mentioned. The Gnostics were people who believed in a, uh, and there were many groups of Gnostics. It, they weren't like all combined. Uh, you know, it wasn't like a Gnostic society, uh, you know, where they all like got together and talked about their Gnosticism. You know, there was a lot of different groups, but we, scholars have given them the name Gnosticism because Gnosis, Gnosis means knowledge. And all of them believed in, in like hidden knowledge. That there was knowledge out there that most people didn't have, and only the initiates in these particular movements got that knowledge. Beware of anybody who comes along trying to sell you something in Christianity that says, hey, you have to belong to my particular group in order to know this. Nobody else knows this. When somebody tells you that, walk the other direction. 
their nonsense. Just walk away. You know, and that's what the Gnostics believed. Now, they, part of Gnostic belief was that humanity was inherently evil. All flesh was inherently evil. Now, they got this from, like, Plato had, had certain beliefs and spheres of existence. And the highest sphere of existence was, was you know, like, like the mental and spiritual sphere. But he believed, you know, physical existence was lower, of less value. Well, the Gnostics kind of took that idea of Plato, some of the teachings of Aristotle, who also kind of believed in different levels of existence. They took some of those things and they formed them into their own little belief, and they said that everything that is fleshly is evil. So they went one of two ways. Glenn has mentioned the one way. They, they basically said, well, hey, you know, only the spiritual matters, so anything you do in the flesh, it doesn't matter, so do whatever you want. Sleep with anybody you want, eat anything you want, break any law you want. None of that matters, only the spiritual matters, which of course is complete nonsense. You do know, though, that the early church was accused of that. Because of its beliefs in, 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 in a spiritual realm, a lot of people during that day tried to claim that the church believed that. And, and, and again, that was actively you know, uh, fought against in the letters of the Bible in the New Testament. Paul specifically mentions it. Some say that this is what we believe, but no, we don't. Basically, this is nonsense. You can't be a Christian and believe this. So that was one kind of bent that Gnosticism took. The other bent is some became extreme aesthetics. And what an aesthetic was was one who tried to kind of uh, uh, beat the humanity out of themselves. You see this in a lot of the medieval monks you know, in, in Catholicism, where they would flagellate themselves, like whip themselves, deny themselves food, only eat just barely enough to stay alive. The idea was if my humanity is so evil, I've got to completely, like, you know, beat it into submission, which, again, is not sound. You know, it, 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 it's not a sound understanding of, of the Bible. So Gnosticism was very... Yeah, I know what you're thinking. These two are making me laugh. You got to stop. A <laughs> little Monty Python going on here this morning. Um, you know, Gnosticism essentially was like a form of, of docetism. You know, it, it was a denial of, of the humanity of Jesus. Another one was Marcionism, who had docetic um, kind of elements to, to his teaching, this guy named Marcion. In order to back that up, he basically did away with most of the New Testament because, you know, the New Testament became, uh, you know, an annoyance to him because it kept saying that Jesus was human. So he kind of threw out everything in the New Testament except for, for some of Paul's writings. He, he even had to throw out a lot of those, uh, but, you know, in order to kind of make his point. Well, all of these things were condemned by the church. In many ways, docet, he's talking about docetism here, docetism was the first full-fledged heresy. With the possible exception of the Judaizing legalism Paul had to combat in Galatia. Docetism takes its name from, from a, the, a Greek word uh, dokio, uh, which means to, to appear or to seem. Docetism's central thesis is that Jesus only seemed to be human. God could not really become material since all, mater all matter is evil. And he is perfectly holy uh, and pure. The transcendent God could not possibly, possibly have united himself with such a corrupting influence. 
This particular Christology resolved the tension in the idea that deity and humanity were united in one person. It did so by saying that while the deity was real and complete, the humanity was only an appearance. But the church recognized that this solution had been uh, achieved to, at too great a price, the loss of Jesus' humanity and thus of any real connection between him and us. Ignatius and Irenaeus, and, and these are two great names uh, in the early church. Ignatius and Irenaeus attacked the various forms of docetism, while, while Tertullian uh, gave particular attention to the teachings of Marcion, which included docetic uh, elements. It is difficult today to find pure instances of docetism, although docetic tendencies occur in varied schemes of thought. Now, I want to briefly mention one other, and that's what was called Apollinarianism. And I'm not going to go into like a whole thing in order to just save some time here this morning. But, but Apollinarius was not a bad person. He was actually, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a friend and, and, and kind of a, a co-worker of, of Athanasius, who uh, was the great champion of Orthodox Christianity at Nicaea. The major force theologically at Nicaea was Athanasius, one of the greatest theologians in the history of, of, of the church. Well, Apollinarius was, was you know, one of his friends and, and, and allies. But he became so, um, <laughs> and this is what happens sometimes with heresy, he became so intent at fighting anything that diminished the deity of Christ he came up with a formulation that itself diminished the, the humanity of Christ. Uh, you know, th that made Christ at something a little less than, than human. You know, that the, the humanity was kind of there, but, but he wasn't really completely human in the way we are. Uh, and, and this was also condemned uh, by the church. Let me just kind of read that, that portion of it. Um, the church concluded that while not as thoroughly uh, thoroughgoing a denial of the humanity of Jesus as docetism, Apollinarianism had the same practical effect. The church's theologians challenged uh, the assumption that, that the human and the divine as two complete en entities cannot co be combined in such a way as to form a real unity. They noted that if Apollinarius, uh, if as Apollinarius claimed, Christ lacked the most characteristic part of humanity— Human will, human reason, human mind. Basically, Apollinarius basically said that, that Christ was human, but he didn't have a human personality. That there, he only, there was only one soul, one uh, personality in Jesus, just the divine. There was not a human one. Well, that, you know, if, if, if that's the case, and this is what the church uh, said, uh, if that is the case, if Christ lacked the most characteristic part of humanity, human will, reason, and mind, it hardly seemed correct to call him human at all. As specifically, they concluded that Apollinarianism uh, rejected the belief that Jesus took on the psychological uh, components of human nature, that this clashed with the accounts of the gospel. Consequently, Ap Apollinarian doctrine was condemned at the Council of Constantinople in 381. So you guys get the idea that there's been many false ways of trying to understand both Jesus' deity and his humanity. And many of these things, in some way or another, make their way even to us in modern times. 
As he said, pure forms of docetism are hard to find. But you can find, you know, kind of things like Apollinarianism, where people try to say, well, the humanity of Jesus was, wasn't quite like, you know, real humanity. Yeah, you know, they kind of fudge it a little bit. But that is not the teaching of the Bible. That is not what the church has always accepted of Christ from its beginning. The church, again, believes that Jesus is two complete natures, God and man united in one. That is the teaching of the church. That is the true doctrine of the nature of Christ. He is undiminished deity, perfect humanity, united in one person forever. That is the teaching of the church. Now, I want to touch on one more thing. And that is how these two things work together. The unity of Christ. How do, how do the two beings come together? Uh, one, this is enormously important for some of the same reasons that we've already mentioned. If Jesus was not divine, not fully divine, then his death on the cross really could not accomplish our salvation. You know, only God could do that. If Jesus was not fully human, then he really was not connected with us, and his death had no bearing on us. It was not really a sacrifice for our sins if he was not truly human. So both of those, what's that? Yes, man had to do it. It was man's sin that put us in that position, and, you know, man had to pay a price. You know, and, and so these two things both have to be true. These two natures have to be combined in one in order for it to be effective. So that's the importance of it. Now, what's the Bible say? Well, I want to look up just a few of these verses. Uh, let's start with uh, Galatians 4.4. 4. And I'll give you these, you guys can follow along if, if you want, but I'm going to move fairly quick on this, so I'll give them to you and you can look them up later if you'd like. Says, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. So it was God's son, God sent his son, the deity of Christ, but he was born of a woman and was subject to the law. So you see both the, the deity and the humanity of Christ in the same verse. Colossians 1, and this is a large section, and this would probably be the last one that we'll read, and I'll just give you the other ones. Uh, Colossians 1, verses 12 through 22. I want you to notice both the deity and the humanity of, of Christ emphasized in this section. Always thanking the Father, he has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into his kingdom by his dear son. So there you have God, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. How did he purchase that? Through his death. There you have humanity. It continues on. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He cre he, his existence before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him God created everything and in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made these things uh, we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, authorities, in the unseen world, everything that was created, uh, everything uh, was created through him and for him. 
So there we see the deity again. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Again, the deity of Christ. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the, be- is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. Uh, so he is the first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. You guys get that? God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. The div- divinity and the humanity. God and man together. And through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Humanity. Shed blood. You know, the two natures of Christ are seen clearly in what Paul is writing to the Colossians. Fully, 100% undiminished deity, perfect humanity, together in one person forever. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemy, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. We can just stop right there for our purposes. I mean, it couldn't be said much clearer than that. That full humanity and full deity together, working together for our salvation. Both those things are needed in order for us to be saved. If you want to look up some other verses that speak of both the humanity and the deity of Christ, um, look, up first, uh, look up John 1.14, uh, look up 1 Timothy 3.16. So those are some other things that you can that you can read. Now, there have been numerous misunderstandings of this through the years, uh, as you can well imagine. Um, one was Nestorianism, which basically was that Christ was born as a man uh, and became God at a later point. I'll just sum up some of these things for you. Uh, because Nestorius believed so much, uh, you know, Again, overemphasizing kind of the deity uh, of Christ. How could deity become, be born and be carried by a woman for nine months? How, how, did, how could that happen? So he must have been only human when he was born. And that at some point, deity came on to him. Well, that is, you know, again, it's just not biblically sound. It's actually kind of a, a form of what was called adoptionism. That's that God, uh, you know, that, that, that Christ was a human being, and at some point kind of do- God adopted him as God. You know, there's elements of this kind of in Mormonism. You know, it, it, that, that God kind of adopted him as God and made him God at some point. But he, you know, he, he, he was, you know, just a human being up to that point. And adoptionism, again, was condemned uh, by the church. Uh, in, in fact, Nestorianism, uh, even before adoptionism, was condemned at uh, the council at, uh, in Ephesus at 431. Now, the church at that point was, was, you know, there was a lot of politics involved in the church. And I don't just mean politics as in, like, in the local churches. I mean they were very involved in the politics of the world around them at the time. And, you know, an emperor, you know, was kind of sitting on the throne, and an emperor... Had, you know, this is during the days of the, the Roman Empire, 
an emperor had to officially call a council of the church for it to count. Okay, and emperors would, would side on one side of an issue or another, and they would try to like make things work the way they wanted to. And, and they tried to, uh, one emperor, uh, you know, tried to kind of intervene in some things. And, and ultimately, another council was called two years later uh, in Ephesus uh, and kind of tried to reverse everything that that council did, but it was not an official council. It's come to be known as the Robber Synod. Basically, it was, it, they were robbers, essentially. They, they had no right to actually do this. So they, they restored Nestorius, uh, you know, and, and or, or actually uh, another guy, a guy named Eutyches, and I'm, I'm not going to necessarily get into that too much here today. Um, but his, his idea was that there was only one nature. Humanity, uh, uh, you know, the human nature of Jesus was so absorbed into his God nature that it basically ceased to exist anymore. And there was only really one nature, okay? So, you know, that was kind of the idea of that. So you guys get the, the idea that, you know, there's the real statement of who Jesus is, the statement that the, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, because after all this happened, they had to call another council, an official council, and, and the theologians of the church all got together, and they said, no, 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 this is, this, we got to stop this nonsense. And they came up with a, with a definitive statement at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, and that statement was that Jesus is, is always two natures. From the moment of his incarnation, he is two complete 100% natures, human and divine, that they, they are undiminished in any way. Okay, He is fully human, fully divine. As I've mentioned several times, and again, if you haven't written it down, write it down. Undiminished deity, pure, perfect humanity, united in one person forever. Okay? That, 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 is, the, that is, is the proper understanding of the two natures of Christ. Whew, man, there's much more we could say, and we just do not have the time to say it. it, it um, again, this is the most difficult, probably the most difficult doctrine in the church. It's why there have been so many false teachings in regard to the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, or in how the two work together. Kind of all of them fit into one thing or another. They either diminish or completely do away with the deity of Christ or the humanity of Christ, or they somehow make the, the idea of how they are formed together, uh, you know, they, they do it so poorly that they diminish the one or the other. That, that's virtually all the heresies are in that nature. And today, that is where most heresies come up. All right? You guys get, get what I'm saying? All right. I realize this is, this is a tough one. Yeah. You know? But, but th this... This is probably the single most important, you hate to elevate any doctrine above any other, but this may be the most important for us to try to understand because it is where kind of the rubber meets the road for our salvation and for what Christianity really is. And if we don't get this right, or if we fail to notice when movements around us are not getting this right, then essentially we alter true Christianity. You know, we lose it somewhere in, in the mix 
in these different things. And that's why, you know, we as a church do not believe the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons are truly Christians. They're not denominations of Christianity. I have nothing, you know, I, I, I don't dislike them. I, I, you know, I, I love them as people. I've known both. But they are cults. They are heretics. They are not true Christians. And I don't, those of you who have known me for a long time, you know I don't say that lightly. You know, but that is just reality. And the, and the biggest reason is they have several things that are wrong, but the, the central one is they do not get it right when it comes to Jesus Christ. Okay? All right, let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, for who you are. I thank you that you sent your son, and he is 100% God and 100% humanity. And he's united forever from that point on as the, the, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And he died for our sins, and you raised him from the dead. Father, we are going to be celebrating that shortly as we lead up to Easter here. And it's a wonderful thing, Father. It, it is, everything in our faith is built on that. It all pointed to that. That's where it was all leading to. And if we lose that, then we don't really have what you wanted us to have. And so, Father, I pray that you would sharpen our minds and keep us on guard for how this is lost around us so many times. Just, Father, we ask for your blessing upon us. We need you. Uh, we love you. And so, Father, we want to lift your name up. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody.